kingdom of God is being proclaimed to them. And we need to be guarded that we do not, that we're not living a life as believers dependent upon ourselves to live a life of humility. My father-in-law was an incredible example of this to me. He was one of the people in my life who, who just preached Christ with how he lived in such a clear way that it was very challenging to me. When he was dying, and, and he, he passed away, you've heard me tell the story, He's pa- he passed away at a, a young age. I wrote a letter to him just in case I didn't, because he's in Canada, just in case I didn't get up there soon enough to, to visit with him. And I just thanked him for his example. When I did get there, Arlene and the girls were already there for some time. When I did get there, he was in really bad shape, and he could, he was, it was really an effort for him to get a thought out. I walked into his room, and, and he, was, um, he was sitting up on the bed. He had been helped to sit up, and he saw me, and he, t- he motioned for me to come sit down. And he, it was really difficult for him to talk. But he said this, you wrote a letter. And I said, yes, sir, I did. And then he said, you think too much of me. And I told him, well, we can talk about this when you're better. <laughs> he just gave up and said, okay. <laughs> and so I guess someday in heaven we'll have a talk about it. But... I tell you that so I can tell you this. When he did pass away and we had his funeral, uh, it was in a, a large sanctuary. And there was standing room only for the funeral. Standing room only for a man who had never preached a sermon in his life. To my knowledge, never taught a lesson as a teacher. But he was constantly in the Word, studying it, thinking on it, and living it. And when he died, I, uh, you know, there was just so many people in that building. I, I walked to the back of the foyer, and I looked out the front door, and I saw the parking lot was full, from one end to the other, of pickup trucks, construction workers, people that he had come across just in daily life working in construction from all over the area. Someone who preached and proclaimed the kingdom of God, but not someone who thought very much or very highly of himself. And that that sobers me. You know, as a Bible teacher, as a preacher, that embarrasses me. And so as we look at this chapter together today, and we look at these different people, I want us to be mindful of just what kind of people they were that Jesus would preach and proclaim the kingdom of God to. And to not be so quick to dismiss ourselves from identifying with these people. So let's pray, and let's jump into the ch- to chapter 8. Father, we thank you for this morning and this time you're giving us together to be in your word. Lord, we ask for your wisdom. 
to allow you to do in our hearts with it what only you can do. And we thank you that you allow us to ask such a thing because, Lord, you do want us to walk with you. You do want us to abide in you. You do want us to know you. And so we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so who were, who were these people? Well, we know from verse 1, at the end there, he mentions the twelve. The twelve, also known as apostles, if you turn back just a couple of chapters in, verse, in chapter 6 and in verse 13, uh, it says, And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles. So we, we know that there's these twelve among the disciples that were um, part of the inner circle. They were very close to him. And, he, and they were called apostles. Now, apostle means a messenger, one that is sent. Um, Bob Utley explains it like this. It is from the verb to send with the rabbinical implication of delegated authority. It's used in Greek classic like our term ambassador. So when the ambassador of our country goes somewhere else, when he speaks, it's the, it, it is the, the nation, our nation, that is speaking. He speaks with the authority that the president gives to him. And this is the idea with the apostle. When we read about the apostles and, and we, we read their writings and we read of their life in, in the book of Acts, what we're seeing is the authority of Christ. So that's who these people are. It also, it's been pointed out that he could be referring even to the whole nation because in Matthew 19, verse 28, it says this, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so... You know, these are important people. Just what kind of people were these apostles? What were they like? We know from Matthew chapter 26 that Peter denied Jesus. We know in Galatians chapter 2 that Peter was a backslider. And Paul had to take him behind the woodshed. We, pardon me? Yeah. Yeah, publicly. In Mark chapter 10, James and John wanted to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, do you know what you're asking? And they believe they did. Nathaniel was so prejudiced that he judged Christ before he ever met him. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Matthew, he was a tax collector. And Mark chapter 14 tells us that all the apostles abandoned Jesus at his arrest. And, and these are the 12. Turn, turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Why would Jesus be interested? He knows what kind of men they are. He even knew how, what the, how they were going to respond to things. And, why would he want to do this? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, 
For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world to despise, and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became, to, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You know, I've noticed in my lifetime, that often those who think they're something and have something to give and want everyone to know that they are something and have something to give, that they often become nothing and everyone knows it. But also I have seen this in my life. I have also found that those who believe that the only good in them is Christ have been used of the Lord to bring about some of the most impactful moments of my life. And I have a list here, and I've been debating over whether or not I should go over that list and just give you some names, but I don't have the freedom to do it uh, because it would involve naming some people that are in this room, and I would really like to do that, but I know them so well that I know that they would not appreciate me doing that. So the apostles, 12 stinkers, not just Judas, but Jesus preaches and proclaims the kingdom of God to them. Who else is there? Well, the women were there. And, you know, this is an incredible thing that we just kind of gloss over, especially those of us who have grown up in the church. You know, we know about Mary and we know about the other Mary. You know, we know about the women at the tomb. We know about the women who traveled with. But what did this entail? What did this mean? Well, they, in verses 2 and 3, you know, there's some description of them. Also, the women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. You know, these, these are women who, they've really gone through it. In chapter 7, in verse 37, we see that when Jesus is, uh, he's, um, he's ministering, and in verse 37, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And that word implies some kind of immorality. So it's believed that it's probably a prostitute. And some people think it's actually Mary Magdalene. So regardless, this is, this is one of the women that are, that's, that's there. Uh, Mary Magdalene herself is mentioned in verse 2, who had been delivered from seven demons. And we, we go on and we see there is, um, the, in, in, in this chapter, in verses 43 to 44, which we'll look at in a few weeks, um, 
we find the woman that had, who had been hemorrhaging, bleeding for 12 years. We find Jairus, who is the head of the synagogue, his daughter, 12 years old. These are all you know, just different people who, have, who, are, who are just named, who were part of the women who were being proclaimed the kingdom of God, preached the kingdom of God. They're from different positions in society. We've already talked about the woman in chapter 7, possibly a prostitute, but immoral. In verse 3 of chapter 8, uh, Joanna, wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, so a, you know, an affluent position. We also find, uh, you know, talking about the, the young girl, Jairus' daughter, later in the chapter. So different positions in society. And then I, I love how it's all summed up in verse 3, and many others. So there were a lot of women there. Throughout the Gospels, we, we find a list of the women who were among the disciples. It's well recorded. There were a bunch of women there. What am I getting at? Why is this such a big deal? I appreciate the words of Sue Bolin, who's from Probe Ministries. She says this, It's not true, as some feminists charge, that Christianity is anti-female or horribly abusive or oppressive to women. In fact, nothing has elevated the status and value of women as biblical Christianity. And I found some uh, comments by, let me get to his name here, um, Alvin Schmidt, who wrote How Christianity Changed the World. And I am, I have always, I used to teach a class at his hill on public speaking, and I really stressed, don't read large um, uh, text. You know, in, instead, if you're going to read something, keep it small quotes because people have a hard time listening to you just read and read and read. And I'm, I tell, but I also tell them there's no absolutes. So I'm about to do, I think, for the first time what I've never done. I'm just going to read a lot to you because there's just too much in here. So buckle in, hang in there. We'll get through this. But his comments on what Christ was doing here and involving these women in his ministry and proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, I think it's really good insight. What would be the status of women in the Western world today had Jesus Christ never entered the human arena? One may answer this question by looking at the status of women in most of present-day Islamic countries. Here, women are still denied many rights that are available to men, and when they appear in public, they must be veiled. In Saudi Arabia, for instance, women are even banned from driving an automobile. Whether in Saudi Arabia or in many other Arab countries where the Islamic religion is adhered to strongly, a man has the right to beat and sexually desert his wife, all with the full support of the Quran. This command is the polar opposite of what the New Testament says regarding a man's relationship with his wife. Paul told the Christians in Ephesus, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved his church and gave himself up for her. A sacrificial love, a costly love, not convenient, because that wouldn't be love. 
Jesus loved women and treated them with great respect and dignity. The New Testament's teaching on women developed his perspective even more. The value of women that permeates the New Testament isn't found in the Greco-Roman culture or the culture of other societies. In ancient Greece, a respectable woman was not allowed to leave the house unless she was accompanied by a trustworthy male escort. A wife was not permitted to eat or interact with male guests in her husband's house. She had to retire to her women's quarters. Men kept their wives under lock and key, and women had the social status of a slave. Girls were not allowed to go to school, and when they grew up, they were not allowed to speak in public. Women were considered inferior to men. The Greek poets equated uh, women with evil. Remember Pandora and her box? Woman was responsible for unleashing evil on the world. The status of the Roman women was also very low. Rome, uh, Roman law placed a wife under the absolute control of her husband who had, who had ownership of her and all her possessions. He could divorce her if she went out in public without a veil. A husband had the power of life and death over his wife, just as he did his children. As with the Greeks, women were not allowed to speak in public. What about the Jews? Well, Jewish women as well were barred from public speaking. The oral law prohibited, prohibited women from reading the Torah out loud, and synagogue worship was segregated with women never allowed to be heard. Jesus' treatment of women was very different. The extremely low status that the Greek, Roman, and Jewish women had for centuries was radically affected by the appearance of Jesus Christ. By word and deed, he went against the ancient, taken-for-granted beliefs and practices that defined woman as, as socially, intellectually, and spiritually inferior. The, human, the, the, the humane and respectful ways Jesus treated the re, and responded to the Samaritan woman at the well may not appear unusual to the reader in today's Western culture, yet what he did was extremely unusual, even radical. He ignored the Jewish anti-Samaritan prejudices along with the prevailing view that saw women as inferior beings. He, he started a conversation with her, a Samaritan woman, in public. The rabbinical oral law was quite explicit. He who talks with a woman in public brings evil upon himself. Another rabbinic teaching uh, prom prom uh, prominent in Jesus' day taught one is not so much as a one is not okay, one is not to so much as greet a woman. So we can understand why his disciples were amazed to find him talking to a woman in public. Can we even imagine how it must have stunned this woman for the Messiah to reach out to her and offer her water for her thirsty soul? And among Jesus' closest friends were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who entertained him in their home. Martha assumed the traditional female role of preparing a meal for Jesus, her, her guest, while her sister, Mary, did what only men would do, namely, learn from Jesus' teaching. Mary was a 
cultural uh, deviant, but so was Jesus, because he violated the rabbinic law of his day about speaking to women. By teaching Mary spiritual truths, by viol he violated another rabbinical law, which said, let the words of the law, the Torah, be burned rather than taught to women. If a man teaches his daughter the law, it is as though he taught her uh, perverted sexuality. When Lazarus died, Jesus comforted Martha with this promise containing the heart of the Christian gospel. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? These remarkable words were spoken to a woman. To teach a woman as bad, it was bad enough, but Jesus did more than that. He called for a verbal response from Martha. Once more, he went against the socio-religious custom by teaching a woman and by, by having her publicly respond to him, a man. The first people Jesus chose to appear to after his resurrection were women. Not only that, but he instructed them to tell his disciples that he was alive. He did this in a culture where a woman's testimony was worthless because she was worthless. Jesus elevated the value of women beyond anything the world has seen. And then Schmidt goes on and he finishes with this. As a result of Jesus Christ and his teaching, women in, such, women in much of the world today, especially in the West, enjoy more privileges and rights than at any other time in history. It takes only a quick trip to an Arab nation or to a third world country to see how little freedom women have in countries where Christianity has had little or no presence. It is the best thing that ever happened to women. And so I appreciate the insight here because Jesus doing this, having these women a part of what was happening there went against everything in society. It went against everything, not only in the Greek and the Roman world, but also in the Jewish society. This was not acceptable because women were not considered of much worth. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just horrific. And, and what changed all of this but God himself? Jesus Christ did this. Now, to be clear, you know, you know you, we hear a lot, and, you know, and, and this church has taken the stance, you know, that, you know, this is of the role of women being different than the role of man. But... We want people to understand we do not think that different means inferior. Um, you know, just thinking of Genesis 2.18, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. And the word helper means aid. And this is something that I get to go through with the students at His Hill at the beginning of, of every, every year. And it's interesting, the comments that they, they come to me with. We, we talk about... You know, the, the, all the stuff that's going on in society right now with, uh, you know, all the, the, the perversion of, of the sexes 
and we talk about the role of man and woman, and the consistent comment that, has, that, that, that I have received, the most consistent comment that I have received from the students after these classes is they tell me, and these are kids who grew up in church, they say that I have never been told this before. I have suspected it. I've heard them say that. But I've never heard this before. And, you know, you start to look at some of this and you think, well, I think I know why they haven't heard it before. You look at the word, the woman is the helper, the aid. Oh, my goodness. Well, Paul understood that, you know, what, what God was doing, that, it, that, that man needed somebody. For, in, it, uh, for indeed, man was not created for woman. In 1 Corinthians, we read this. Man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. And we read that, and, you know, we have to be guarded because if we're not careful, we think that's very degrading for a woman. She was made for him. But that's, see, that's just how Satan, that's just how the world wants us to think. They want us to take truth and twist it. I mean, think about, think about the attack in the garden and the day that you take you will die. You will surely not die, Satan says. But when you take from it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See, there's enough truth there, right? Oh, well, we're supposed to be like God. We were created in his image. So this is a good thing. No, just enough truth and twist it. We should see it the way it was told to us. You see, man needed her. It's not good for the man to be alone, God says. I appreciate what Wayne Grudem says about this. I don't agree with Grudem on, on a number of things, but I, I do appreciate his statement with this. He says, yet in the same sentence, God emphasizes that she is not to help Adam as one who is inferior to him. Rather, she is to be a helper fit for him. And here the Hebrew word means a helper corresponding to him. That is, equal and adequate to himself. So Eve was created as a helper, but as a helper who was Adam's equal. She was created as one who differed from him, but who differed from him in ways that would exactly complement who Adam was. See, Paul understood this too when he talked about the different roles, not speaking in a way that where one is inferior to the other, but they're just different. In 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, he says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And we do all kinds of linguistic gym, uh, gymnastics to try to twist that into saying something else than what it says But Paul goes on and says exactly why he declares this. In the next verse, he says, For it was Adam who's created, and then Eve. So it was creation, not the culture, that determined the role of men and women. And in doing so, they're living out the image of God. And this is the, this is the point, that God's image is to be seen in men as a man. And God's image is to be seen in women 
as a woman. And when we start to play with those things, we start to make adjustments with those, then all of a sudden, what are we doing? We are now perverting, distorting the image of God. And so it's not supposed to be a relationship whereby the woman is inferior, but she is equal but different. And living different, she shows the image of God. And Jesus comes onto the scene, and he looks at these women, and he proclaims the kingdom of God to them. He preaches the kingdom of God to them. These people who were considered to be inferior, that Jesus says they are not. Who else is he proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God to? Well, the 12, the women, and then there's this large crowd, those from the various cities. Large crowd in various cities. Uh, I, I'm just reminded of 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know, he was going, as we read this chapter, we find that he was going into these villages, going into the next one and into the next one, and then people were starting to follow him out of these villages. There's large crowds coming out, and it's the Lord wants all to hear this. He wants all to know this. And we go on, who else? Well, the man who's possessed with demons in, in verses 26 to 39. And again, we're going to look at this in more detail in a few weeks. But, you know, this is the man where they, Jesus gets out of the boat and he runs up, the, the man runs up to him and he is possessed. Um, it says his name in, in verses 26 to 39, his name is Legion, which is interesting because we know at this time uh, the, the Roman legions would, they could be as many as 6,000 soldiers. And so this one man is called Legion, so there's just no telling how many demons are possessing this man. And the life that he's, that, that, that he's, he, he's been trapped in is exactly a picture of what Satan wants to do with us. He's the thief that wants to kill, steal, and destroy but Jesus is the one who, what, who wants to give life and give it abundantly. And so this man's only hope is Christ. And then, finally, we come to Jairus, who's an official in the synagogue in verses 41 and 49 to 56. Jairus is, you know, being the, the, the official of the synagogue, it means that he was in charge of the, the public service, the worship, appointing people to, to do the reading of Scripture, to pray, and to even preach. He would have been the one that was in charge of all the elders, so he would have been kind of the, 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 the head elder of the congregation or of this assembly, of the synagogue. And he was usually a man of reputation and of wealth. And so it's been pointed out that it would be very humiliating, very humbling for this man and very courageous for this man to come to Christ asking him for help because his daughter's dying. Why? Because by this time, the Jewish leaders were already plotting to kill Jesus. And here's the head of the synagogue coming to Jesus. 
what was necessary. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. The context of this verse is just believers getting along with each other. So to whom did Jesus proclaim and preach the kingdom of God to? Well, He preached and proclaimed the kingdom of God to those who had need to hear it. This, I mean, we look at this list, the 12 who abandoned Jesus, the women who were very low in society, large crowds, the man possessed with demons, and Jairus, the head of the synagogue. You know, the NCAA, every year, the, the football program, what they'll do is they, they look at their recruiting classes nationwide, and then they'll grade them. You know, they'll look at, you know, who did you get for quarterback? Who did you get as a linebacker? And then they'll grade the schools, and it's a big deal. If we were to grade this list, it just, you know, I think if we're honest, it just wouldn't hit a high mark. But these are the ones that Jesus is preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God to. And I got to tell you, the Lord's just been really working in my heart this week to tell me, Kelly, you fit in that list. Who benefited from hearing the preaching and proclaiming of the kingdom of God but those who recognized their need? They're coming to him from all the villages. They're coming to him from all walks of life. They're coming to him from all kinds of situations. They are those who recognize their need. Remember Paul's words? Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you recognize your need? And have you heard what Jesus has to say about his kingdom? Do you recognize his reign in your life? You know, we have a new ministry at his hill, the one that, uh, that I'm overseeing, and it's, it's a podcast ministry. And we've been hearing from alumni, and the, it, the, the comments have been really interesting. I had one person write to me from Canada and say, Kelly, it's really good, he said, first of all, to hear familiar voices again. But more importantly, to be reminded of who Christ is. And he says, I'm now teaching a Sunday school class. And this reminder the Lord has used to have me go back and look at Scripture again and think through, what am I teaching? Have a, a young mother from North Carolina, South Carolina, North Carolina, just wrote recently and said, Kelly, I've just started listening to the podcast. And I want to say thank you for the reminder that you and the staff are giving of who Christ is. Kelly, these are things that I have forgotten. But now I am reminded that the only way I can be the wife and be the mother that I am to be is because of what Christ has done and is doing in me. Have we heard and are we benefiting? Do we recognize our need? Okay, we have about five minutes. Any comments?
response then was, uh, woe for I am ruined. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he he was humbled, and then so humility is not just for unbelievers to recognize, but, but for us. Yeah, yeah. 